Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of, well, true crime. This week, it's going to be a little different. We're doing a very interesting story, and I'm really excited for the conversation that we're going to get to have about the the the, the, the quote Bad Nurse story this week. I feel like it's probably going to um, ruffle a few feathers, and that's okay. I'm totally fine with that. But it's also going to lead us into when we get into the the good nurse portion, because once we get there, we're going to talk about some research and real world things that are going on that I believe affect what happened in this particular story. But before we get into our stories, I would like to introduce or actually just welcome back an old friend of the show. I'm really happy to have you back on, Nurse Keith. Thanks, welcome Tina. back. It's good to, to be show. here with you again. It's been a while. I know. We, we I, I was just telling Emily, my assistant, I'm like, you've got, I don't know why I wait so long. I'm like, we need to put some, some of these people we got to put on a list. And Nurse Keith is one of the people that we should be reaching wow. out to him at least every six months. I want, I don't want a whole year to <laughs> go by. You. This is ridiculous. So Thank I'm you. so glad to have you back. Get to talk to you. I always enjoy having you on. I always enjoy your insight and wisdom and some of these topics that we, we get into, unfortunately, in healthcare. Before we get started, tell everybody about what you have going on, your podcast. What do you want people to know about you? For those who don't know me, my name's Nurse Keith, and I'm a career coach. I work with nurses and some other health professionals, but mostly nurses and nurse practitioners. And I'm here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where the snow is falling quite significantly at the moment while we're recording this. I'm looking out the window. I have a podcast called The Nurse Keith Show. I actually, today, I just recorded episode 420. So the show's been around a while. And I do some writing, I speak at conferences, I do all sorts of things, and I love being on the microphone talking about nursing and healthcare. So I'm super happy to be here to dig into this case with you. Nurse Keith is one of, I feel like one of my mentors, the people that I looked up to before I started podcasting. I remember listening to his podcast and just really admiring the talent that you have for just, you have that radio voice and that presence that I think is very calming, people love, but you also have the wisdom to go with it. And so the combination of the two, I think is what's given you the the staying power that you have and the reason that people want to hear what you have to say. And you're so good at conferences. And so that's, I'm just, I'm always thrilled to have you back and have you on. And I'm just thrilled to that I can call you a friend and to have you on. Thank you, Tina. I'll keep my FM radio voice on for you today. <laughs> Thank you. 
Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast, and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or Family Nurse Practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebatters.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash goodnurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash goodnurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. All right. Well, I guess we can get started with this story. So I told you guys this was going to be a little different and maybe ruffle a few feathers. I, I'm, I've i never been afraid to do that. You know, you guys know me. You know me. I'll say whatever. It gets me in trouble sometimes. It's all right. I'm all right with that. I've gotten myself in trouble more than once and people have their opinions about my opinion and I I'm okay with that. I am totally fine. I accept it. I'm a big girl. I can take it, take the heat. But I'm always very passionate and kind of firm in my beliefs, but I like to believe I'm open. But one of the things that I do believe, and I am, I was talking to Keith about this before, I am very passionate about the fact that I believe that nurse, nurses and other healthcare professionals should not be charged criminally for making a good faith mistake while in the process of doing their job. And I, I will say that I believe that that is the case if you're honest and open about it. And if it's something that you're, if you're trying to cover up and hide, obviously, that 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 is unacceptable. And at the same time, I can understand in this day and age, because it seems like left and right, people are getting arrested for really what's obviously mistakes that are happening while they're doing their jobs. And it's it's always arguable whether or not it's whether whether they were maybe being sloppy or whether their technique was not accurate or proper or they following actual protocol you know if you look up the lip and cot manual procedure the way things are supposed to be done but what drives me crazy about that is so many times some facilities allow the these things to be done this way because they know that these corners have to be cut in order for the nurses and, and other healthcare staff to be able to do their job with the ratios that they're given. So many times they're given impossible um, standards, they're given impossible jobs to do. They're, they're, they're given in a situation where maybe you're in an ICU, you should only have one to two patients and you're given three. And you, not only should you only have one to two patients, but you should have someone working in the desk, answering the phone, maybe monitoring telemetry. You should have someone, a tech to help you with turning your patient or bathing your patient or I, I don't know, just there should be more staff that's available. And then you end up with this skeleton crew of of staffing. And so what happens? Nurses and 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 techs or whoever it is, they end up cutting corners because they're just like, obviously, I don't have time to do this. So they try to cut the corners to where it's the safest, still safe for the patient. A lot of times I feel like sacrificing themselves, their own safety, their own health many times. And I, I feel like that's the situation we get ourselves in. I think hospitals and facilities will look the other way 
a lot and have been looking the other way because they know that it's allowing them to keep these skeleton crews running these hospitals. And that, like I said, I knew, I know it's going to be controversial. I wanted to kind of get that out there and just say that up front. It is how, it is what I believe. I've been working in a hospital right, you know, all the way through COVID in the ICU. I've, I've been travel nursing. I, I've just, I've seen too much. I've talked to too many people and this is, you know, how I feel. And then having said that, this, this case comes along. That's very kind of hot off the presses. This just happened in, in January. It sort of all came, I guess, sort of to a close in January. So having said all that to kind of lead up to this, this is the story of a nurse, an LPN called Aminata Fofana. She was a, an, an LPN, licensed practical nurse in Ohio. She worked at Capri Gardens Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Lewis Center, Ohio, just north of Columbus, And she was working night shift and she was approaching the end of her shift on May the 20th in 2021 when she attended to one of her patients, Paul Mallory. Now, Paul Mallory was 72 years old. He had been a resident at this long-term care facility since 2019, shortly after the facility opened its doors. His wife had cared for him for more than 20 years before transferring him to Capri Gardens. He had previously suffered multiple strokes and an aneurysm that had left him debilitated and without short-term memory. His condition, however, continued to decline and his family had made the decision to place him on hospice care in January of 2021. So that's kind of the situation that's sort of where, where we are when this particular incident happened. And before we kind of get into what happened, one thing that I will say is that 6.45 a.m. for me, for and I've, I think for probably most nurses, if you are that time period toward getting toward the end of your shift, it, my husband knows, he's heard me talk about this before, how hectic it can be, how, because what are you doing? You're trying to kind of, so you're, you're trying to scramble around and make sure everything is done. You want your patients to look good. You want them to be ready for the oncoming shift. You don't want to leave them. You don't want them to walk into a, a mess. You want them to walk in and feel like, okay, I can get my day started. This looks great. Everything looks good. And I, I can get my shift started with things I do, I need to do as opposed to walking into like a huge mess to have to try to clean up and then it's going to put your day behind. So I feel like that's sort of where we were in this setting. It's the end of her shift and she's going in there to clean this. Paul Mowry had a trach. And so he had a tracheostomy, a tracheostomy mask, which I'm assuming is sort of like one of those, almost like a blow-by mask that sort of lays there right on top of the trach. But usually they're not like real secure, but they, they just sort of like have I don't know. Have you ever taken care of somebody with a trach like this? I have. Yeah, several people. So you know what I'm talking about. You have that like green stretchy band that kind of goes around their neck and then it just it snaps together and it just sort of lays there and there's like that blue tubing that goes to the oxygen, hooks up to the oxygen. So it's just sort of blowing the oxygen, you know? Yeah, that sounds... That sounds close to what I've seen in the past, yeah. Yeah, and you can set it to different percentages and all of that. So that's what I'm thinking. Those things can get kind of yucky, especially if there's a lot of drainage coming from the trach. If they have a lot of secretions, the whole a lot of times the whole point of the oxygen, that oxygen mask is less about the oxygen and as and more about the humidity that it's providing to that airway. 
because it can get really dry and you want to keep it moist, the airway moist. And so taking it away, a lot of times it's, you know, it can get dried up and that that can kind of cause it to sort of, sort of close off, you know? And so you really want to keep that moisture going, but I'm sure he probably needed the oxygen as well. So in this particular case, she's going in there to clean that that trach mask. And I don't know if she maybe was doing trach care too, because in so many times in these these um, these stories, there a lot of the stories, like when you're doing research, you are a lot of times reading news stories and they aren't necessarily medical people. And so they don't, they may not understand exactly what's going on. So she, who knows, she may have taken you know, the, the inner cannula out and cleaned it and put it back or if there's or switched it out, you know, depending on what kind he had. But the way it's the way it seems to be told is that that she just cleaned the trach mask and then put it back on him. But then the blue connector, the blue, you know, bendy connector that goes over to the oxygen had gotten disconnected and was not put back on to the mask part, which is absolutely horrifying. And I, I I hate the you know the thought of what he went through you know over the next hour or so because about an hour later the day shift nurse came in to his room and found the tracheostomy tubing disconnected on the floor and then also found the patient to be asphyxiated. So I, you know, this is. I haven't worked in a hospital. I worked on a progressive care unit with, we dealt with trachs all the time. This is, they would be on ventilators a lot of times. And so when you're on a ventilator, you kind of know they're, they're going to tattle if anything's going wrong, you know, because if, if, if there's some kind of disconnect, something disconnected or blocked, it's going to alarm. But in this particular case with the oxygen hooked up that way, it's, there's nothing to let you know, unless you have what an O2 probe, you know, if you have an actual O2 monitor that maybe is on his finger that is assessing his oxygen level. And I, they didn't have that. And part of the the thing that I struggle with, with the story is that I think a lot of people say, well, yeah, but he, he was on, he was on hospice. So, you know, if you're on hospice, you wouldn't a lot of times have monitoring equipment. But if that's the case, if you don't have monitoring equipment because he's on hospice and you kind of are, you know, not, you're not wanting to disturb them. You want them to be, you're making them as comfortable as you can. And you don't, you don't want them hooked up to lots of machines and that sort of thing. But then why, I I don't know. I just, I feel like if, if you're going to look at it like, well, this patient had the potential to decline if his oxygen was removed. I mean, then shouldn't he have been monitored some way? I don't know. That's just kind of what I was thinking about it, but I'm not sure. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think the first place I go with this is that this is a nursing home. And I know we're going to talk about in the second half about nursing home ratios, but I can only imagine how many patients she was carrying that morning. We don't really know as far as the data that I have here and that you have. We don't know how many patients she had, but we can assume it was in the dozens, right? Probably minimum two dozen, maybe 30, maybe more. So first of all, we just think about that, 
and we think about the the meds, the treatments, the equipment, the care that needed to be done, and having that many patients one is responsible for is in my mind, egregious, and we'll talk about that later. Yeah, and I, I assume she was probably not just cleaning the mask. She probably was cleaning the inner cannula. She probably took the trach apart and put it back together. And granted, she made an error, you know, and she admitted the error, and it was a fatal error. And yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, even a person on hospice is going to be monitored if they're on oxygen or other other treatments. But we know that that doesn't always happen, right? Especially in a nursing home where you have so many patients and probably limited resources. So that's it's it's a very very unfortunate situation. I feel terrible for the wife. I feel terrible for the suffering of Mister Mowry, and I feel terrible for the suffering of the nurse because. Either by your inaction or your action causing someone else to suffer and or to experience, you know, to, to die prematurely is a horrible thing to live with. And I can only imagine what that feels like, you know, Tina? I, I can't I can't imagine it. It's hard to it's hard to it's hard to imagine, honestly. I've seen people struggling at the end of life at their end of life having worked on a PCU. We would have people that would be there who would switch to comfort care because they have reached a point that they're either going to have to be intubated or go to comfort care because there is nowhere else for them to go. We're kind of maxed out. And that is a really horrifying and scary place to be when you're trying to give those patients medications like Ativan and morphine to try to calm their breathing down, to try to relax their airway, to help them feel more comfortable. It is, it's excruciating to watch someone in that situation and you're doing, you have things you're trying to do for them to help them be more comfortable. To think about what he went through when there was none of that, there was nothing to, to try to comfort him or help him through, oh my gosh, no, I can't, it's hard. I don't even want to think about it really. It's just unimaginable. Right. And thinking about his wife and his family you know, he was on hospice, yes. And when someone is on hospice and you know they're they're inching towards the dying process, right? Part of the reason we want them on hospice is to be comfortable. The other is that so the family has access to that person, they can be with them as they die. And to think about the family being robbed of the experience and the the comfort of being able to be with their loved one when he was dying. I just, that's excruciating. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I keep going back to, you know, the fact that if someone is, is requiring oxygen or some sort of intervention like that to maintain their airway and to maintain life, then they, they should be on some sort of a monitoring system. I just, that's just how I believe. That's what I believe. That's personally what I believe because clearly this, look what happened. And and this could have been avoided. If he had had an O2 monitor on, this could have been avoided because then you, at worst case scenario, you're going to hear the alarm be- be- beeping and you're going to go in and check and see, oh, his oxygen is off and you're going to put it back on. So maybe the discomfort would have been for 
a few minutes as opposed to who knows how long, you know, and, and what all happened. Um, but, but that's just right. Know. And that, that comes down to, that comes down to a facility actually ponying up to have those resources, to have telemetry, to have an O2 monitor, to have enough staff to monitor, you know, the data coming in. And, you know, we all know that, especially here in the United States, that's what we can speak to, because this is the country where we live, that things revolve around the, the bottom line, and facilities want to save money. They want to spend the least amount possible and bring in the most revenue possible in order to appease their shareholders, especially if they're a public, you know, publicly owned company, right? So if it's a company with shareholders who they have to answer to, then they're going to potentially cut corners and not have certain safeguards in place because those safeguards are going to cut into profits. And that's, you know, that's one of the places I land when it comes to for-profit healthcare. Yeah, it is, I, as well, I, I, I'm with you 100%. CBD Stat, they're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples. And I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist. And it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for her scoliosis. And it really does help. That's amazing. And of course, their products are 100% THC free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1,000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. That's cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they'll know that we sent you there. So the Ohio Department of Health and the Center for Medicare Services conducted an investigation, of course, into the death of Paul Mowry. And this nurse, Ofana, fully cooperated with the whole investigation. She explained to investigators that she had forgotten to reattach the mask and that, you know, she just had made a mistake. Her report differed from an earlier account of events by the nursing home director. So apparently the nursing home director were kind of, some people were speculating, some, I guess, nursing advocates were speculating that it was an attempt to absolve the facility of blame and maybe to kind of throw the nurse under the bus or feed the feed another nurse to the wolves, so to speak. But their account, this nursing home director had advised the Ohio Department of Health that the patient, quote, had the ability to displace the tubing. This statement, however, was heavily refuted by Mallory's wife, who informed local media outlets that her husband was incapable of moving his body apart from opening and closing his eyes. Fofana was fired from her position at the long-term care facility and stripped of her nursing license. She faced charges of reckless homicide and involuntary manslaughter. She initially pleaded not guilty, but then she changed her plea to guilty to involuntary manslaughter in just this past January 2023. The guilty plea came with a possible prison sentence of a minimum of nine months and up to three years, along with a possible fine of $10,000. 
very emotionally charged hearing. She, the nurse, repeatedly apologized and asked for forgiveness. I watched the video of this. She was visibly distraught. I I know that in so many of these cases, what happens is what's known as second victim syndrome, where if a, a nurse or another healthcare professional is directly or indirectly responsible for the death of a patient because of a mistake that they made, they will punish themselves emotionally and mentally so much that they even uh, people have gone to the extreme of taking their own life because of of just not being able to live with what they have done and i've done those stories on this on this podcast before it's it's horrible it's so sad they just can't quite move beyond because they can't get a, they can't get over the fact that they caused a death especially like for some, in some cases, it was like, you know, children, babies, and then the nurses just can't, they can't let themselves go. They can't let themselves move on from it. Because in their mind, they're just like, how can I, how can I just go on with my life? And and as if this didn't happen. And and then ultimately, you know, it, they succumb to that, the, the, the pressure and the stress and the anxiety of, of all of the, the rumination and the, you know, just those thoughts that, that go along with, with, with all of that. So I, I can, you could see that in the video on her face, the turmoil, I'm sure how she has tortured herself and will continue, I am sure to torture herself over this. I saw the same thing in Radonavat throughout the years leading up to her trial. I, I saw that in her, the, how she tortured herself over what she had done. And it's just, it's sad because I think so many times people, people want to have somebody to blame for their loved one, you know, something like this happening. They want to see someone pay. And somehow it's like, if you have, sometimes there is no one, sometimes things just happen and horrible things happen. And it there is no one to blame. It's just the circumstances. But if there, if there is someone that can, that, that you can like put up, you know, put out there and say, this person actually made a mistake. So it's like, it, it just feels good to be able to direct all of that, all of those feelings, those feelings of grief and frustration at a person. And I just don't know what, what does that solve? What does that do? It, I don't, it's hard for me to imagine that it really makes those people feel better. And it it's not it's certainly not going to bring the, the victim back. It's not going to bring them back. And is it going to prevent this from happening again? I would say the opposite that and that's, that's what I believe. I believe that it is very likely that the more we do this, the more we're handcuffing healthcare professionals, and charging them criminally, you know, with negligent homicide and, and and these, you know, other charges that where they're facing years of, of proceedings and possible jail time, I think, you know, completely ruining their lives aside from what happened. I think the more we, we see that you're either going to, you're going to have a combination of two things. You're going to have people that are going to say, I don't want to be in healthcare anymore. It's not worth it. I'd, I'm going to do something where I'm not, I don't, I'm not involved in direct patient care because 
It's not worth it. It is not worth it to me to lose my license that I worked so hard for. I will find another way to use my license where I don't have to, at least I don't have the risk of being arrested and charged and, you know, going through all of all of that. And then I think you also are going to have people who are working at the bedside who just culture is just gone. It's out the window and they make a mistake and they're immediately going to be thinking self-preservation. They're immediately going to be thinking, oh, I, oh dear, what have I done? I can't say anything because, oh, they may, I may be in trouble. I may get arrested for this. Oh, oh my gosh. You know, like, and the, all this stuff's going in their mind and they're, they're hesitating before they speak up and say something. And you, and that could result, I think, into not only not, you know, in a situation where you're not going to be able to prevent things in the future, because that's what we're supposed to be able to debrief. We're supposed to be able to, to say, how can we keep this from happening again? By looking back and kind of doing a, a recount of every of the of the steps, what happened leading up to this? How can we prevent this from happening again? But not not only will we not have that opportunity, but what if there's a mistake that has happened that you could potentially reverse? What if you gave something that there's an antidote to that there's a reversal for? But there, the the nurse is sitting there going, "Oh gosh, I." What have I done? And they wait, they hesitate just long enough that it's too late. And then they just decide, oh, I, I can't say anything at this point, or I'm just going to be in trouble. And before you, you know, then it's just too late. And they never say anything and nobody ever knows what happened. I mean, we, I, I believe that that is a really scary place to be for me as a person who could potentially be a patient in a hospital or my family could be. I don't, I don't believe that's a safe place. I believe in just culture. What do you think about that, Keith? Well, Tina, I think what you're talking about is is a chilling effect, right? So if nurses and other healthcare professionals are afraid of criminal prosecution, and we mean, you know, not a civil case, but a criminal case where they're being charged with, like you said, manslaughter, et cetera, et cetera, and facing the potential of jail time, it has a chilling effect on those who are already in the professions those who are caring for patients and increases the worry and stress over, you know, making errors. And it also has a chilling effect on people who might be thinking of coming into the professions and, you know, staffing hospitals and clinics and doctor's offices, et cetera. So the chilling effect is, is potentially very powerful. And I I believe I fall in the same place as you that that this this quick movement towards criminal prosecution isn't necessarily in anyone's favor and like you said it doesn't bring the person back and of course the people who are the the remaining family members, right? The survivors of the person who died. Let's say someone died, like Mr. Maori. Of course, they want someone to pay, right? And that's that's sort of a natural human inclination. We want there to be someone to suffer consequences for what happened. And I completely understand that. And the consequences of, let's say, losing one's license not being able to practice as a nurse or whatever type of provider you are, never being able to practice again, and also the mental and emotional and spiritual anguish that one would suffer after having caused something like this 
to a large extent, I feel like is is a just punishment. The criminal prosecution, I think, is where we get into a pretty slippery slope, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I do think it is a slippery slope, and I I think a lot of people, you know, would say, well, if you don't if you if you don't hold people accountable, then how how do you make how do you cause you know make them be careful? It's not like there aren't consequences. I am not saying that someone should have no consequences. I a hundred percent believe that in, in a situation like in anywhere near like this, where someone's made a mistake, that's so, so costly that it should be evaluated. They're the board of whatever profession they are should be looking at this situation and dissecting it and interviewing the person and really trying to determine, you know, what is appropriate, whether it be continuing, you know, education, some sort of education to help help improve their understanding of the the way they should have been doing their job. Or maybe it is just so egregious that it's like, you know, it's, it's just unacceptable. We can't have you working in direct patient care anymore because no matter what the circumstances, you should not ever be in a situation where you would not have some sort of self double check in place. And this is what I've always said to nurses whenever I precept new nurses. I'm always, you know, I always talk about my always and my nevers. You know, you, you have, you, you should always, you should have every nurse, especially working at the bedside in direct patient care should have their always and their nevers. You should have certain things like I, my, my, some of my things that I, I know I always do is I always read aloud medications as I am about to open them. I read them aloud. Even if the patient is intubated and unable to speak back to me or acknowledge what I'm doing, I just basically act as though they can and I just say it out loud. It's a habit that I formed a long time ago and it I feel like it helps me because I'm reading it off the, the computer screen, you know, off the mar. I'm saying it out loud and I make, you know, making sure that it matches, that it makes sense. I even say, you know, this is you know, pentoprazole, and it will help decrease the acid in your stomach, you know, like whatever, whatever it is. That way, and and, and I, I do that for all these meds, you know, this, the whatever it is, and a, a very, very simplistic mechanism of action. And that's my habit. And if I don't that because if I make a habit out of that, then I, if, if I get to a med that I can't, I don't know what it is, then I better stop. I, I'm not going to keep, don't keep going. Don't just be like, oh, I don't know what this one is. Keep open, open it up. Keep No, you, then you got to stop and just be like, oh my gosh, okay, what is this one? I don't know what this is. Am I going to give a medication to a patient that I don't know what it is? No, don't ever. That That is a never. That is one of my nevers. You never, ever give a medication to a patient that you don't know what it is and what it does. Ever. It's just, that is a never. And, and so to me, if you don't have these always and nevers in place for yourself, there's just certain things like don't ever, ever let somebody talk to you when you're programming a pump. You're If you are programming a pump, I don't care what you're programming, what you're doing. If it's just saline, don't let somebody talk to you. Oh, hold on just a minute. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you in just a second. Do not allow yourself to be distracted when you're programming a pump, period. Because what can happen? You might be programming what you think is an antibiotic. And it's like, yeah, I mean, just mindlessly programming Miram and it's over 30 minutes or whatever. One of my nurse 
managers one time told me about a case where she was supposed to, she had diltiazem hanging there and then some other kind of uh, like an antibiotic and they were both in the same bag. So it must have been like a pre-mix kind of thing is because the diltiazem that I used didn't look at all like this, but apparently they the antibiotic bag and the diltiazem looked exactly the same, the way it was mixed in the pharmacy. So she ran the diltiazem over like 30 minutes because she programmed the diltiazem bag as if it were meripenem. So the, 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 <laughs> the pump allowed her to do it because she looked, you know, she's, it's not going to think it's odd to run meripenem over 30 minutes because it's appropriate. So she had them both hanging there together. There's another, there's another never, you know, to do. Don't ever have two meds hanging together. Do them one at a time. You know, like this is how, to me, you, you come up with these always and nevers. And if you have these things that you establish from the beginning and establish as you go, as you're learning about yourself, as you're learning, stop and think about what could happen. What, what could happen if I made a mistake with this? What could happen if I'm cleaning someone's oxygen mask? If I'm readjusting their oxygen, if I'm do whatever, if I'm messing with their oxygen at all, what could happen? It could come, you could unplug it from the wall. You could, for you know, it, it could obviously in this particular case, it could come attached from the, the mask. So what's a, an always that you could create in this particular situation so that, you know, this is not going to happen or it's very unlikely that it would happen. If you're messing with someone's oxygen before you walk out of the room, you always double check to make sure the tubing goes from the patient all the way up to the wall and that the oxygen is turned on the appropriate amount. That way, and you follow it, you follow it yourself because I've had that happen before where there's multiple oxygen tubings and one of the oxygen tubing is hooked to the wall and one of them is hooked to the patient. <laughs> so if you ever had that, I've seen, I've walked into rooms and seen that before. Why is this patient desetting? It looks like they're on like eight liters and that it's in their nose, but the one that's in their nose is hanging in the floor. And the one that's hooked to the oxygen, the other end is, is like laying in the bed. Do you, you know what I'm saying? By creating these always habits, you can make it to where it's almost you know, really impossible for something like this to happen. But what you cannot do, I could not say that there isn't a mistake I could make that could take the, the life of a patient. Because I believe that no matter how, more, how hard I try, I'm a human being working in a very flawed system, <laughs> very flawed system. And I am not perfect. And I, as hard as I try, and as much compassion as I have for people, and how much I love my job, I cannot I know I'm going to make mistakes. And I, I just, I, I can't get over this. I can't get past it. I just can't. And it horrifies me. It's one thing to risk losing my license and losing, you know, what I worked so hard for and the job that I love. I, I know that's a possibility if I make a mistake. But to risk losing my freedom, to be, to, to put my family through years of a trial like this and, and possibly have to go to prison, that's not acceptable, Keith. I'm sorry. It's just not for me personally. Criminally offensive actions as healthcare professionals. It's a whole other story, right? But you're coming from the perspective oh, yeah. of someone making an honest mistake, having, you know, having done something wrong, not because they were doing it intentionally, of course. They were they were going about the course of their business during their day and they made an error, you know. And there definitely needs to be consequences, which we've already established. 
but I do think this this chilling effect of of a potential prison sentence is really sending a message to those who work in healthcare and those who might want to work in healthcare that that we're putting our lives on the line in in such a intense way in such a scary way that it could scare many of us away from serving in the first place. Yeah, it, it really bothers me. It bothers me as much compassion as I have for his wife for what she had to go through knowing, you know, she has to live knowing what her husband went through in the last moments of his life. And I do, I do feel for her, but it, it frustrates me to know that she listened to what this, how this nurse pleaded for forgiveness and uh, repeatedly apologized and was clearly in anguish over what she had done. And she could say after the trial, I'm not ready to forgive her. I'm glad that she was convicted for causing my husband's death. It's just, to me, that is just, it's hard for me to hear that as a healthcare professional who, because we we do sacrifice so much of ourselves to take care of people and for people to be, I'm sorry, but really kind of selfish, you know, with that attitude that you're not allowed to make a mistake. You just aren't. You are just not allowed to be human. You you want robots taking care of, of you in the hospital because it's probably going to come to that at some point. <laughs> but are robots going to go in and turn you every two hours? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's what they're going to do. Maybe they have robots going in and cleaning people's bottoms and assessing for lung sounds and heart sounds and, and for skin problems. And I, I don't know. Maybe they will have robots doing that and other machines that can take over and do that. And nurses won't be able, you know, won't have to, to risk that, you know, we won't have to worry about being perfect. But if that's the case, who's who's programming the robots? Somebody ultimately will be responsible for. There will be a human being involved at, at somewhere down the line. I mean, at, at what? Where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line with this? Where we just want to criminalize everything and put people in jail, make someone pay, and we're just not allowed to make mistakes. I don't know. We can put ourselves in the shoes of the wife and others who've lost loved ones. And I can, like I said earlier, I can only imagine what what they went through and are going through on an ongoing basis. Again, to your point, in terms of criminal prosecution, what does that really serve, right? Especially for someone who's made an honest error. And that is definitely an ethical issue that needs to continue to be debated in in this space because it's it's real and it's happening all around us and as long as you have human beings taking care of human beings things are going to happen and it's highly it's very unfortunate and tragic you know and how we as a society deal with these sorts of issues is definitely is very telling it tells us a lot about who we are so I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, 
I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes this stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. The prosecutor said our office will never hesitate to fight those who victimize the most vulnerable in our population. What kind of a statement is that? It, for one thing, it sounds so out of touch with what actually happened because nobody victimized anyone. This was a mistake. Clearly, it was just it was a mistake. It was horrible, horrible. And I, I, I. I don't really, you know, like I said, I don't want to think about how absolutely tragic it really was. It's just really unimaginable. But at the same time, the, no one set out to victimize a vulnerable adult. This is not a case of elder abuse in the strictest sense of the word, where you have someone who is supposed to be taking care of someone who is vulnerable elderly, and they are not giving them the food that they need, the, the the medications that they need, or they're deliberately doing things to try to restrain them or abuse them in some way. That is not what we're talking about here. And yet, this is what the this is what's happening. These prosecutors all across the country are seeing this as an opportunity to win a case. Because no one wants to think that no one wants to let anyone get away with abusing children or elderly people. No, <laughs> it's unacceptable. No one wants, you know, no, most people are not going to want that. And you're going to be 100% behind anyone who's going to try to stand up for those people. And you want people standing up for those people and representing them and advocating for them. But not in the case where it's, it's not really what's happening. That does nothing to further that cause, to protect people in vulnerable situations. If anything, to me, who is responsible? Is it maybe the facility who's not, requ who's not re requiring adequate staffing, who's not putting systems in place to where something like this could be prevented? 
This nurse was sentenced to three years of basic level community control. Additionally, she has to complete any classes ordered by her probation officer. She has to do 100 hours of community service, pay a $500 fine, and maintain approved residence and employment. She has to also surrender her nursing license, and she's prohibited from working in any field of nursing or taking care of sick individuals whether it be paid or volunteer. So she's not allowed to say, oh, well, I am a nurse, so I can, you know, I have these skills, I can volunteer to help. You can't do that. She's also unable to leave the state without permission or have any future violations of the law in any manner. Failure to comply could result in in an extended two-year community control sentence or a judge could impose a prison sentence. So there are a few pressing questions, obviously, that remain unanswered regarding the circumstances leading to his death. You know, were there the safeguards in place that should have been? Could the, a central monitoring unit, video surveillance, maybe have been utilized to allow the staff to watch patients who are considered critical or require equipment to maintain their life? And as you s- said earlier, how many patients was that nurse caring for that night and how many shifts had she taken prior to the accident? A lot of times that's the case too. People work 12 hours and then be asked to work an additional you know, four hours or so. And so they're working like 16 hour shifts. You know, this case is, has a lot of parallels to the case in Nashville with Redonda Vaught. And um, her story was more about a, a medication error that led to a death. But, you know, they they were both pr- transparent in their interactions with investigators. They admitted to making mistakes. Vaught was definitely scapegoated by her employer, just like Fofana. She was charged and convicted criminally and lost her ability to continue to work in her profession. The death of Paul Mallory will undoubtedly haunt this nurse in all aspects of her life, not just as she seeks new employment opportunities. So the patient's wife also filed a wrongful death suit against Capri Gardens, the parent company of the long-term care facility. And that hearing is scheduled for March of 2023. I, you know, I I told you guys we were going to talk as we get into the goodness portion more about things that that go on that really, I feel like affected this. and, And we've already kind of alluded to it. But the thing is that everybody, I think everybody, anybody listening to this podcast, whether you are in healthcare or not, probably is aware of what goes on in nursing homes. If you're not, you probably should be. Because if you think that you couldn't possibly end up in a nursing home, think again. You do not know at, at what at, at any time. If you, you could be in a car accident, you could suffer a stroke, anything could happen that could cause you to be in a situation where you, your people, your family at home just literally physically cannot take care of you. And you could end up in a facility like this, whether it's a long-term care facility, skilled nursing facility, or, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. You could end up in a facility like this. And the numbers are really scary as far as what these facilities are allowed to get away with. There really are not a lot, there are not any really strict laws in place to protect the patients. And so these facilities are, what is their number one goal? Making money, keeping their, you know, keeping the bottom line in the black, right? So as we said earlier, if they can, if they can have 30, you know, 30 patients to one nurse instead of, you know, 15 to one, that's a whole salary. Think about 
how much, you know, a nurse course at, at these long-term care facilities. A lot, I know in Tennessee, they probably make somewhere in the neighborhood of, I don't know, 50,000 a year or something, 50, maybe, maybe 55 to 60,000 a year. Something, something, somewhere like 25 to $30 an hour, I would guess a lot of these, the LPNs that work in these hospitals or in these facilities, some of them more, but they have the ratios so ridiculous that the nurses literally spend their whole time up and down the, the halls of these facilities passing meds. They're from one to another, to another, to another, to another. And then the CNAs are just like from one to another, to another, to another, turning the patients and cleaning them up, turning the patients and cleaning them up. I don't know. Have you ever spent any time in any of these facilities, Keith? I have. I've had friends and loved ones who were in nursing homes. I actually took a job as a nurse's aide in a nursing home in Massachusetts before I was a nurse just to earn extra money and get some experience. And I actually quit after, I think it was one day or two days, because I was charged with feeding patients breakfast, and I was told that I fed the patients too slowly. And, you know, I was giving them time to chew, giving them time to swallow, chatting with them a little bit. I didn't want to just be shoveling food down their gullet, you know. So I saw the inhumanity of the situation right then and there, and I decided to quit. I quit on the spot, you know, after just, I think, one shift. And I've seen these facilities also as a nursing student when I was, you know, on my rotations. And they're they're sad, horrible places to a large extent, especially the ones that serve the Medicaid population. You know, the lower down the socioeconomic ladder you go, the worse the facilities are, the more they smell, the dirtier they are, the more crowded they are, it, the more it seems like people are warehoused, sitting one next to the other, next to the other, next to the other in the hallway, just kind of like waiting for time to go by. And when we look at ratios of 30 to 1, 50 to 1, 60 to 1, there's just ask any layperson on the street just go up to someone and say, okay, so let's say you were a nurse working in a nursing home. How many patients do you feel like would be a reasonable number of people to take care of? Or let's say your father was in a nursing home. How many patients would you want your father's nurse to care for during any given shift? And they would probably give you a fairly reasonable number. I don't think any reasonable person would say, oh, the person taking care of my dad could handle maybe 60 patients at a time. You're not going to hear that. So it just goes to show that there's something wrong with the system. The system is broken and it's sick. And when we're asking nurses who have worked very hard to get their licenses to get where they are, to care for patients who are putting trust in us and trust in the facility to care for them. If we're asking them to do something that is obviously superhuman, then we're we're greatly, greatly, gravely misguided. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there was a there was the nursing home reform law in 1987, which that that's a that's a long time ago. I feel like there's a lot more reform that needs to be done between then and now because we're gonna we need to catch up with the times. But that law requires at least one charge nurse per shift, 
one RN for at least eight consecutive hours a day for seven days a week, and then one designated RN to serve as their director of nursing on a full-time basis, who is allowed to double as the charge nurse if the average daily resident occupancy, yeah, occupancy is below 60. So, and then also it says, and otherwise sufficient nursing staff to meet residents' needs. So it's like, where does that that's awfully vague. And it is very vague. The Medicare website even states there is no current federal standard for the best nursing home staffing levels. As long as these nursing homes meet the bare minimum, they are technically in the clear. There was a a little unofficial poll done in a Facebook group that was taken by thousands of long-term care and skilled nursing facility nurses to determine, you know, basically like what kind of nurse to patient ratios that they're facing in their own workplaces. And so the way that they divided these results were by state. And in the state of Ohio, the average nurse to patient ratio in these facilities was 32 patients to one nurse and 16 patients to one CNA. So when I think about there being one nurse and 32 patients and then 16, you know, so in that, obviously in this setting, you've got two CNAs for this, for this floor and one nurse and, you know, 30 patients. And and each one of these patients, I'm sure is going to have some kind of medication that is due. And if it's a skilled nursing facility, I would imagine they probably could have a pretty extensive list of things that they're doing. It, you know, they could have, obviously, trach care has to be done. They could have peg tubes where the meds have to, has to be crushed. Who knows the extent, you know, that, that they could have to go through. So I can just imagine these nurses up and down the hall trying to get all of this done. And then you've got the CNAs. If you have one for every 16 you know, patients, and you've got 32. So that's two CNAs. Well, they're going to have to go together in most cases to take care because you can't really, most of the time, you can't take care of a patient by yourself. You It takes two people to safely, for both the safety of the, the healthcare worker and the patient, you need two people helping you do it most of the time. So by the time they get through all 30 people trying to turn them and you know, you're supposed to be turned a lot of times every two hours. It's going to be time to turn around and do it all over again. And 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 I guarantee you, a, a lot of times, because I did, I've worked in one of these facilities as well when I was in nursing school. A lot of times, the second you get, you clean someone up and move on, they will, they, they soil themselves again. But it's going to be another two hour and a half to two hours before you're ever going to be able to get back to that person because you can't just keep going back to the same people. You got to keep moving on. Or you're never going to get you know around to all the other people. So the, that 32 to one may sound crazy and ridiculous. And yet in the state of Tennessee, it's 44 to one nurse, 44 patients to one nurse, 44 patients for every two CNAs. That's just ridiculous. I'm sorry, but that it's it's not doable. It just isn't. It, so it is ridiculous, are, Tina. Yeah, and in they're not New York, getting taken care of. Yeah, in New York, let's let's it's fifty to two, so that's twenty five to one. So mm-hmm. just imagine, you know, twenty five to one in and of itself is an outrageous number. But what about right. Illinois? Where, where does Illinois stand? 
Yeah, in Illinois, is apparently 66 to 2. So you have two nurses, a sort of similar situation to Ohio, but they do have four CNAs for every 66 patients. So how generous. Kind of, I mean, I know it's, it's basically the same. I mean, it's sort of the same. It's just that the facilities seem larger, I guess. But mm-hmm. still, the same ratios essentially, or the same number of staff per patient. But then in Georgia, 50, 50 patients for one nurse? How? How? Mm-hmm. Are and patients then, laying in their own poop? Are patients not being turned? Of are patients they developing are. pressure ulcers? Yes. They absolutely, they absolutely are. are. Tina, and then drum roll, please. How about Nebraska? This is disgusting. I can't. I just. I really you can't say it. You can't bring yourself it's horrifying. to say it. No, I think people are going to listen to this and think there's no way this is true. Sixty, uh-huh. uh, really, sixty uh-huh. to one nurse, and then sixty patients to three to four CNAs. So the CNAs are just working constantly, and the nurse is not able to get all their pa- their meds passed, but without them being late. The nurse is definitely passing meds late on all these, really. There, no one can get all of these meds passed within an hour to an hour and a half that you're supposed to, and it not be considered late, you know, before or after whatever the time is. So, Tina, let no. me ask you a question. What do you think, just off, just off the cuff, what's a reasonable number of patients for a nursing home nurse to carry? What do you think is reasonable and what would be something you would wouldn't like have you know gasp at when you hear the number the only thing that i i the only way i have to kind of gauge it by is i worked on a, a as i said i worked on a pcu and it was an 18 bed unit so i this is 18 patients and these patients most of the time all of the patients on this floor are not able to walk. I mean, they are, they're need, they need to be turned. They, they require total care. In other words, the staff is having to do their bath. The staff is having to turn them every two hours. Um, they require extensive medication. So it's the only, if I, I kind of equate that floor and think, you know, if this if they if that was sort of like a nursing home and they weren't they didn't necessarily have acutely ill things going on like you weren't trying to you know give them antibiot IV antibiotics and all the things that go along with being in, in like an acutely care acutely ill facility so I, I just try to imagine what would be reasonable and it I feel like if you had two nurses for that eighteen bed like for eight for eight uh, those eighteen patients if you had two so like basically one to what one to nine, one to eight, one to nine, something like that. If you had two nurses for the floor, and then on that floor you had it was a three to one ratio for there was three nurses to or uh, three patients to one nurse, so we had six nurses for the eighteen beds, and then we had three CNAs. So each CNA would have six patients, and it was totally doable. We took excellent care of those patients. They stayed turned, they stayed bathed, they were always cared for. The nurses just saw themselves as an extension of the CNAs. And, you know, we just did everything. Everybody everybody pitched in and did everything. There were also three respiratory therapists for that floor, now that I think about it, because there were also the trach vents and all that. So, but it's the only thing I have to kind of gauge it by. So I would say somewhere around 
like nine, between eight and 10 patients to one nurse and at least three CNAs. But, and I think that that would definitely, you could take good care of people. You could keep an eye on their skin. You could feed them. A lot of these people have to be fed too. And there's all, think of three meals a day and, you know, you ha- you have to, if you're not, if you're just going in there and sitting there, their tray in front of them, they're not going to eat. They're not going to be eating, you know, and it's, they, they're, you're going to, I'm sorry. I just, this is so disgusting. That's about where I land for a nursing home is somewhere in the eight to 10 range. And I think that's, that's kind of on the outside of what I think is reasonable. Anything getting towards a dozen or more, I just feel like isn't really, doesn't really present the nurse with the ability and the time and the resources to, to really do his or her job the way it should be done and the way we like to do it. Unless if you had that, you know, higher number, like maybe you had 18 or 20 patients per nurse, then I would say you need somewhere in the vicinity of maybe six aides, and maybe that nurse also needs other assistance as well. But I, I think it all depends on what the other ancillary staff are available. But I, I definitely I definitely land in that same place as you. And thinking about Nebraska, thinking about one nurse with 60 patients, I don't know how anyone could even face going to work each day. Mm-mm. How are they? How are these people getting fed? How are they? Because if you have a facility like this, and you have sixty patients, how many of those patients are going to require someone to feed them? Half of them, probably. Maybe if not, if, what about just a third of them, or even a quarter of them? That and, you don't have that many of, people. Yeah, <laughs> speaking that of that. Members. Yeah, and speaking of that, I mean. Have nursing homes changed over the years? You know, has what is being asked of nurses increased over the years in terms of acuity? I mean, I just think about school nurses. You know, people used to think that school nurses, oh yeah, they they give some aspirin, they put on a band-aid, you know, that's kind of how people used to view school nursing. And maybe it was a more simple world. 40, 50 years ago when I was a child. But now in schools, you have kids who've been mainstreamed for good reason. I think it's I think it's great to have kids mainstreamed, but you have kids with G-tubes, you have kids with trachs and vents, you have kids who are, you know, have some pretty severe disabilities. And the job of the school nurse has shifted a great deal in the last I'd say several decades. So what's happened in nursing homes? Are you aware, Tina, of how the acuity has changed? I I really don't know. I don't know how that's progressed or I I know that it's pretty shocking to know what goes on in some of these skilled nursing facilities, how some of these patients can be on ventilators and just have how sick these people can be that these nurses are required to do all that they do and then to have the as many patients as they're required to have it it's just no there's no doubt in my mind that people are getting pressure ulcers and here's the thing th- this is not at all unheard of for imagine this you have this 60 to 1 ratio in Nebraska you have a, a nurse who is 
60 patients and they're going one patient to the other to, you know, supposedly assessing these patients, keeping an eye on their skin somehow, some, you know, and then one of them develops a pressure ulcer and someone comes along maybe, I don't know, at some point and says, oh my goodness, there is a stage three pressure ulcer on this patient's six and oh my gosh, there's also one on their hip. This patient's not been turned. There's no way this patient has been turned. Nobody's been looking at their, no one has seen, oh, wait, this nurse has charted that they're, that they've been turned or they, the nurse has charted that their skin was, you know, blanchable or had no, no issues. And then they're going to point at the nurse and say, it's your fault. You missed this. You did not look at this patient's skin. There's no way you could have. And now this this ulcer has gotten into the bone, has caused osteomyelitis, has caused that infection to get into their blood. Now they're septic. Now they're in the ICU. Now they are fighting for their life. Oh, I'm now they died. They're dead because of you. Because you didn't turn that patient. You didn't assess their skin. You didn't catch that pressure pressure ulcer when it was at a stage one or two. You it you just ignored it. And just went right on with your day as if it didn't matter, taking care of your 60 patients and Uh just didn't even care, just did not care about that patient. And so now they're dead because of you. So we're going to arrest you and charge you with with negligent homicide. Does that sound that far-fetched? No, it doesn't sound far-fetched. And the one thing we're, we're talking about, you know, all the things the nurse has to do, pass meds, do treatments, right? Set up nebulizers, whatever it happens to be, right? So we're talking about that. However, on top of all of that direct patient care, we're not talking about the other things the nurse is responsible to do, which is one, delegate to and supervise nurses' aides, right? So they also have to be supervising other human beings, making sure they're doing a good job. So we put that on top of it. And during the course of that nurse's shift, they're not working in a vacuum. There are colleagues who are saying, hey, could you help me out for a second here? I need to turn this patient, speaking of turning. Or the doctor or nurse practitioner comes in on rounds, and then you have to you have to stop talk to the nurse practitioner or doctor, get their attention, talk to them about med changes, tell them about your assessment of patient A, B, or C. And then you have family coming through, right? So you also have to deal with family, answer their questions, maybe do a little counseling on the side, talk to other visitors who are coming through. So it's not simply just doing these tasks that you check off on your your MAR and your other lists, you also have to be dealing with a lot of other human beings and other tasks that aren't necessarily the quote unquote clinical tasks to take care of. So to put that on top of everything else that this nurse has to do, and it's outrageous amount of work. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely think the roles of nurses and nursing homes have shifted tremendously over time. The workload has increased as the services provided by nursing homes have increased. As what one LPN from Illinois said, her name is Bobby Batcher. She said, we need to stop using nursing homes as psych facilities. They require special care and training. We need to stop using nursing homes as prison release halfway houses. We need to get back to basic nursing with proper nursing ratios. When treatments are heavy, there are, there needs to be a treatment nurse on the day and night shifts. This is a safety issue for the for the staff and the patient and resident. 
So within a typical eight-hour shift, the nurses in these facilities are expected to, quote, pass meds at least twice per shift, monitor blood sugars, give insulin, check vital signs, manage their CNAs or nurse techs, watch meal times, perform wound care, receive and transcribe physician orders, complete incident reports, complete documentation, arrange transportation, diagnostic testing, schedule appointments. On top of keeping in contact with their family members and physicians, they're expected to do all these tasks alone for 30 to 60 plus residents. So just what you just said, it is absolutely impossible to keep up with all of the things that are put on, you know, the responsibility that's placed on their shoulders. And not only is this stressful, but statistically, residents living in an understaffed facility are more likely to experience bed sores, or what we would call pressure ulcers, infections, falls, malnutrition, and weight loss. Despite this, only 12 states in the U.S. have a minimum staffing requirement. Fortunately, in February of 22, President Biden announced a plan to improve the quality and safety of nursing home care. One issue that will be addressed is understaffing, and a study will be held by the Center for Medicare, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to determine new staffing requirements by conducting site visits, observations, and interviews. In spring of 2023, CMS plans to issue a formal proposal for minimum staffing requirements. And we are right on the cusp of that. And that's why we're doing this, this show. And that's, I'm super excited about it, because it's like all the this negative stuff, and then maybe a little light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know. I'm hoping. What do you think? Maybe. I don't. Well, I mean, I don't put a lot of stock in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services doing the right thing by the public to a large extent. So my level of trust is relatively low in governmental bodies to take care of these sorts of things and act in consumers' best interests. However, maybe something good will come of it, maybe not. But I think something obviously needs to change. I'd be interested to know what this particular clinical setting is like in other countries. I'd like to know what's happening Mm. in Australia and Japan Mm -hmm. and England and other places. I'd like to know, are they seeing these same problems? You know, I know they face shortages of nurses. Mm -hmm. Canada, the UK, places Mm -hmm. with Norway, places with uh, national, you know, government, um, Exactly, with um, socialized medicine. Socialized medicine is the word I was looking for. My brain was failing me. And we know know that none of these systems are perfect. None of them are fail-proof. But there must be someone doing it right somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not an American. Yeah. And I'm not an American exceptionalist by any stretch of the imagination. I, I never default to that the way we're doing it is the best way. And I think there are places and people and organizations and countries from whom we can learn. And I think that's what this particular situation calls for. So do we need more studies? Maybe we need more studies for data. I don't personally think we do, but maybe in order for a governmental body to make recommendations, they need more studies. My only my only statement around that would be, well, hurry up and do the studies so that we can actually Just get it over change. with. Please. Yeah. I think we all know <laughs> we need something to improve and fast. Because these are, these are people living in these facilities right now that are suffering because of this. Well, Keith, thank you so much. I appreciate this was such a great conversation. I knew it would be. And we're super excited about, about getting this out there. I want to hear back from some of you listeners. Let us know 
what you think. What are you guys working in the I know you are I know you're working in these facilities. I want to hear from you. I think you're are definitely the unsung heroes, you, the people who are willing to really put their license on the line and their life on the line. It's, it's crazy to say, but you are when you're working in these facilities. And I do appreciate you and what you're doing. And I do want to fight for you and advocate for you. I would love to be able to do whatever I can to advocate for change. If there's any, any of you that have anything any you want to share, you can send me an email at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. I'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on social media at goodnursebadnurse. Keith, everybody where they can find you. The best place to find me is nursekeith.com. And if you're a podcast listener, look for the Nurse Keith Show on any and all podcast apps and you'll find me there. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate you for listening. And thank you, Keith. And hopefully we'll be seeing you again soon and get, get to hear from you soon in the next, I don't know, six months or so at least. Thanks, Tina. It was an honor to be here. And of course, I, I got to remind you guys before we leave that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs> <laughs>